The sermon passage today is on Matthew two thirteen to 23. Now, when they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, in order that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Amen. Thank you, Simon. Okay, Christmas is upon us. One of the things I, you know, one of the things I notice I do all the time is I'm kind of got a little bee in my bonnet about sentimentality around Christmas. Have you noticed that? I tend to, I want realism. I want something I want realism. I don't know what that is. Hey, Cedric. I didn't see you coming. Uh, I didn't, uh, something out of realism, and I'm not quite sure where that comes from. I guess I'm suspicious. But um, I'm suspicious of, of this season. But, you know, as I kind of think about it, we were at we were, we were, we were Target walking around at some point, and different places you walk around, you'll see things that just, there's something about this season that just makes me angry. <laughs> and I, like, I guess when I see a little, a little toy Jesus that glows in the dark, I just like, what's the, ah, you know, it's like, what's going on in this world? Like, there is no, there's nothing sacred. <laughs> like, there's a deep irreverence in the holiday. Then there's the manipulate, the manipulative track, the fact that the, that the, the soundtracks and the, and the tinsel and the lights start at Thanksgiving. You know, that's, a, that's, that's good, that's good, 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 a manipulative, persuasive tactics, because marketers know that in longer exposure to something increases its importance in your mind. Unconsciously, whether you know it or not, the more you're exposed to something, the more important it seems, even if it's not important. And so that this is a, a well-known phenomenon. If we just keep blasting you, you know, we're going to create and manipulate uh, the, the consumeristic uh, uh, greediness that we need in order to establish our final quarter earnings, right? I mean, that's, that's what it's, it's all bottom line thinking, really. So you have that consumeristic manipulation on one side. Then this absurd, like, honestly, an absurd level of, of, of uh, irreverence. You know, it's funny, you will not see glow-in-the-dark Muhammads. You won't, because uh, uh, I think the world has more fear and respect of Islam 
than it does of anything about Christianity. But there's a certain kind of irreverence, and then there's the manipulation, but then there's the other part that I don't like, and that's the, that's the syrup. Syrup drives me crazy. Syrup emotionally. Sentimentality. What is sentimentality? What's the definition of sentimentality? It's, I like, uh, I think this is from C.S. Lewis. Unearned emotion. Unearned emotion. What does that mean? A feeling you have that you didn't actually live through to get to. A feeling you had that didn't actually connect with your childhood or with anything real experience. It's a, it's a feeling about Christmas that, that can be fostered by, by, by images of, of candles frosted with, uh, with, with nice soft colors. And you know what I'm talking about, right? The reds, the greens, the berries, the leaves, and everything, everything ghosted and frosted in a way. It's very pleasing. But honestly, honestly, it, it's, it's prepackaged emotions. I mean, these aren't, these aren't real. They aren't real things. And so we, 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 but we're, we're, we, we like feeling things. And, but those feelings, uh, sentiment, sentimentality or unearned emotion, uh, it's, it's fine for the day, right? But what happens when you eat a lot of syrup? <laughs> what happens when all you do is eat syrup? <laughs> yeah, you see? It's not nutritional. There's nothing there. It's just, it gives you a headache. It gives you, cra- you crash. You can't live that way. And this is exactly what sentimentality does when it hits the reality of life. Like the reality of life that your friend of yours killed himself Friday. Ah, you know? And so I, I need, consumerism's not going to help us wrestle with that or help Karen. You know, and, 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 and the, that, that manipulation, the, the sentimentality is going to sound like a cheat, isn't it? If somebody's going to pat you on the shoulder and hand you a card and, and say, you know, it's the season of joy. <laughs> what? No amount of berries and holly are going to make her feel better. And finally, uh, uh, the manipulation and the, the consumerism. There's nothing. There's not, uh, I want a comfort in the holiday. Well, I'm eager to strip out. All of the sentimentality. This is Bruegel. I saw this picture at the castle in Windsor many years ago. And, and uh, this is Bruegel's famous picture called The Slaughter of the Innocents. This is supposed to be Bethlehem, you see? It kind of looks like a medieval town from uh, Europe, doesn't it? Funny how that happens. That's called ethnocentrism. And uh, it's an ethnocentric projection onto the ancient world. Now, these people all look like medievals in Europe. But uh, it doesn't matter. This is written by Peter Bru- this is drawn by Peter Bruegel, but I want there's something really clever about this picture that you can't see. And you can't see it, and you can see it especially. You see that, see that right there? You see that little swan right there? You see the smudges at the bottom of his feet? That was originally a baby being killed by that soldier. And Justinian, the emperor at the time, asked Peter Bruegel to re-edit his picture. They're all over the place. Right here, there's, a, there's some sort of like a turkey being st- stabbed by a bunch of soldiers. So what Peter Bruegel did was, this was a picture of a child. This was a child. I think this was a child. Uh, there's a child somewhere. Anyway, and what he did was he, he had to paint pictures of animals instead. Because Justinian was worried that this would cause a riot, that this kind of violence by the state, you see, this is the state here. And this becomes like a statement about power and greed and, 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 how, and manipulative and powerful men. Well, that's exactly what Peter Bruegel wanted it to be because Herod the Great is, is supposed to be imagined by this action for what he really was, a madman. Herod the Great was a madman. Three sons, 
Three of his sons he killed personally. And then he killed one of his wife, Mariamne, and that wasn't good enough to kill her mother. He was known, he had actually at one point killed up to half of the Sanhedrin. <laughs> he had been executed. Then, he, this is a great one, and this sounds, this sounds so much like some mad, modern madman in our age. He, uh, when he was going to die the night of his death, every notable person in Jerusalem was put on the walls of Jerusalem, and they were to be thrown off the minute he died. Every notable person in the city had to die the night Herod the Great died. That's insane. Remember, we learned that we don't have genealogies of that age because he, in his zeal to protect his own lineage, which was in doubt, had destroyed all the genealogical records. He was a madman. And he comes right into the Advent story. So, and, and I think there's something here, uh, Michael. This is, this is God. This is our Father. This is our Father making sure that you take the beauty of Advent and the love of God and you make sure you understand its context. Because it comes into a world of violence and sin and power and destruction. And it, it trumps it. But this is a hard-hitting reality. And it's meant to be. So I, 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 want you, I want to move towards this. How can terrible things happen at Christmas? The prophetic witness claims that God is in control. And if God is in control, you see, there's prophetic. There's three, you notice there's three prophecies. One prophecy comes from Jeremiah. Another prophecy comes from Hosea. And the third prophecy, which is even stranger, comes from Numbers, the book of Numbers, about the Nazarite vow. Now, the reason I bring all this up is the prophetic witness implies that God is in complete control. It, it, it says it. It's saying that he is a sovereign God. But if God is in control, then terrible things are a part of his plan. And this creates two pressing questions. How can we live with a God like this? I think that's a question we have to ask. And how do we live with terrible things? How do we live with terrible things? So looking in God's word. Now, what I want, what I want to really kind of get our fingers dirty is in this text, this genre question is what sort of story is this? And something I've been trying to explain to you or trying to give you an idea of is that the Bible's overall genre is a unique genre. Fantastical nonfiction. It's fantastical nonfiction. It's actually a, a genre that is completely new in the world. It is claiming that the fantastic happens because God is real and present here. And so what is what's available? Miracles are available for Jack and me. Miracles of life and real and, and, the, and the word of God, prophetic prediction. It's an actual different worldview than 99% of San Francisco. Do you understand? We're radically different. And, and sometimes when we get, when we get into this, the scripture genre, that's where we begin to see, we get, we get real cash on how different we are than this world. How, how our sources, our ideas, our concept of what truth is possible originates in the idea that a God has spoken and in a unique genre of fantastical nonfiction. Now, there's a particular problem with prophecy, and that you'll find it unbelievable until you know God. I, I was, there, was, there was a friend of mine who wrote a tract, and he, he wrote this tract. It's really cool. There are like hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that actually come true in the New. Like there's a, an amazing level of correlation. So what? That doesn't prove anything. It just proves, or it could prove, just as likely, 
that you have a masterful liar who will wove it all together so it looks like a panorama, so it looks like a coherent whole, so it looks like there was a prophecy a thousand years before and then it was satisfied. You don't, in other words, prophecy itself isn't going to convince you. It's not going to make sense to you. It's going to feel removed from you until you know God. And there's going to be a, you're going to come to the end of it and say, Chris, I hear this guy talking. He sound, doesn't sound like an idiot, but how can he believe that people can predict the future? You'll find it unbelievable until you know God. Second, the problem of prophecy is its style. Supernaturalism is the style of prophetic writing. What does this mean? God speaks, eternal life, go to Egypt. Like, all together. And I want to just, you know what's just in there? You notice the Bible does this? It will telescope in and out of like, I mean, amazing magical miracle and walking down the street and just talking. Like, it doesn't distinguish. It doesn't say, well, we're going to go to a miracle part now. It doesn't do that at all. It doesn't break rhythm. It doesn't break cadence. It doesn't break style. What is it? Supernatural realism. In other words, it's telling you a true story, giving you details about the grass that they're sitting on, and then saying, he broke the bread, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and they gave it to others, and 5,000 people were stuffed. The miracle happens seamlessly, you see? That's supernatural realism. Three, it's a literary form, so it isn't scientifically priced and doesn't try to be. Sometimes people say, we're going to look at these prophecies today, and you'll see what I mean when I say this. Sometimes people say, well, uh, I'm trying to give a good example. Uh, well, we'll see it in this little bit. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That has nothing to do with Jesus. It really doesn't. But then it does has everything to do. You'll see what I mean. Prophecy, well, that's not specifically about Jesus and Hosea, but it is about Jesus because it alludes to him and his work. Four, it comes from an eternal perspective, so it can refer to many different things. All right, Simon, I want you to stand up, please. And then, Agatha, will you stand up at the far end of the room? All right, so, thank you. I just need this as an illustration for me. Okay, Agatha is Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, so let's say I'm Isaiah talking to, actually it was King Uzzah, you're King Uzzah right now. And I came to you and I said, God gave you a promise that you can have anything you want. What do you want? And, and you, I'm talking to you right now, and this King Uzzah, this actually happens in Isaiah 7. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and this is what, this is what I, I, Uzzah says, the, pre, the king says to Isaiah, I don't want to test God. And it's a stupid thing he says. He acts piously religious, he's not. And, and Isaiah says, why do you test God? patience of men and the patience of God. I'll give you a sign, Uzzah. You know what? Uh, the virgin shall be with child and it shall give forth a son. And before he's old enough to know that, does anybody know, anybody heard that? What, what did I say? The virgin will what? Be with child. Isaiah said that to King Uzzah. You can sit down. He was not talking just about King Uzzah in 586 BC or 622 BC. He was also talking about Jesus in the distant future, at the same time, at the same time. Thank you, Agatha. Thanks for being Jesus for me. But it, and the reason that's kind of important is when you look at this night sky, you can't tell which star is close and which star is far, can you? You can't with your eyes tell by the dimness of a star whether it's close or far. And that's the same way with prophetic utterances. You don't really know. They, they have a timelessness about them. They have, a, they have an eternity that they, they speak into the world life but they don't always have a one-to-one -one reference. The way, it's not neat and tidy. It's eternal. 
Fifth, prophecy can predict, allude, suggest, inform, and interpret. Do you know who wrote First and Second Kings? The histories of the kings of Israel and Samuel? Prophets did. Because prophets interpret the events. They interpret the facts. They give the, God's interpretation of what's going on, as well as alluding and predicting and suggesting and informing, confronting and exhorting. Six quotes from the prophets assume their context. So let's move right on from there. And what I mean by that is whenever... What did I do with my little clicker? Thank you. I should like get like a little tether and just like attach it to me so myself here. Uh, these are the three pro- prophecies we're going to look at today. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In fact, if you look at this with, with the bold, with emboldened like this, you can see how much Matthew is writing something and screaming at you, God's in control. <laughs> God's in control. God is in control. God is in control. Herod's not in control. God is in control. Herod's not in control. Archelaus' son is not in control. Egypt, nobody else is in control. God is in control. And so it punctuates the narrative almost rhythmically. Bam, bam, one right after another. You can't even engage the narrative without knowing that God has ordained and foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So let's begin then with the first one. This is fulfilled with the word. It's spoken out by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Take a look at Hosea 11, 1 through 9. And this is where larger context can bring you joy. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What this is about is about all of Israel. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. And they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness in the bands of love. And then go down here to the end when he said, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I see Jesus more clearly now. Do you see it? Now Christ now fulfills not merely this abstract allusion to when the people were rescued from Egypt out of bondage, but what? No, no, much more. Every, all of God's love, he will not come again. He will not come, what? In wrath. That's a promise of Jesus. And so when, when the prophets quote an Old Testament text, they're quoting everything around it as well. And so, and, and that gives us some consistency. Oh, by the way, this prophecy is prophetic illusion and allegorical. The great themes of the Bible play out in life and specifically in Christ. Matthew 2, and now the, sec, the second prophecy, they, that was fulfilled, but was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But it's interesting. You keep reading. Um, Let's go down to verse 20. Isn't Ephraim my dear son? That was the daughter of Rachel. That was the son of Rachel. Rachel dies in childbirth, by the way. Remember that? She dies in childbirth when she gives birth to Benjamin. And, And so she's honored in the Jewish tradition for that. She's the only... Only of the patriarch's wives who does that. And, uh, but my, isn't Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the I am. Oh, yes. So the, even, even, the, even the prophecy that predicted the evils that would happen as a result of evil men... What is in the prophecy still? What's here? What is tucked away in that whole passage? 
Unlimited mercy. Unlimited mercy. Unlimited mercy for his people. And so this kind of prophecy is specific allusion and prediction. The specific events of the Bible are predicted. And so, and it's in a sense co-opted almost. Uh, Rachel and Rama works too with the location that Bethlehem is. And it works well uh, geographically. And they would have known that in the ancient world because they lived there, right? But, and this final, this is the weird prophecy. In order that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that it would be called a Nazarene. Uh, Deepak, you went to seminary. Do you, guys, you guys never dealt with this. You never, you never even talked about this stuff at Princeton, did you? No, you never even dealt with this stuff. It's funny. Most people would never even deal with this, this question on uh, verse 23 because it's that weird. There is no prophecy about a Nazarene. There isn't. Now, there is a spelling of a passage in Isaiah that might have been referenced to a Nazarene. So what is going on here? Well, we were Nazarenes. There was a group of people in the Old Testament who were specially, who specially set themselves apart to, uh, for a special mission. Look, and the I am spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, whether either a man or a woman had makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the I am, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, it was a limited amount of time. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. But look at the best. Look at the word. All the days of his separation, what? He is holy to the I am. <laughs> um, Christ is being figured in everything here. Every part, the Bible's an amazing book. The, the Nazarites, the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the trappings and, and the furniture inside the temple, every part and piece was screaming one word, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. It was all meant to say because Jesus is the advent of the eternal God into all space and time. It is the biggest event that's ever happened. Nothing bigger has ever happened, ever, ever. If, look... <laughs> It, it, by, by sheer implication, it must be true. Now, this captures who he is. As every part and piece of that Old Testament does, as it prefigures him. But it's interesting. Uh, short-term missions is what this essentially was. This is an ancient form of short-term missions. I, I, I kind of think this is kind of funny, actually. Can you imagine doing short-term missions where you're just going to dedicate yourself fully to God for a period of time? Here? <laughs> In San Francisco? Like, wherever you are? And it's an interesting way to think about it, but... There's no record that Jesus took this vow, but pure holiness and dedication to the I am through ceremonial activities is the kind of life that Jesus lived. And, and, and it's a kind of life, it's the kind of person he is. This is who he is. He is holy to the I am. <laughs> it's who he is. And so the Nazarite vow just teaches us more about who we would be. He should be called a Nazarene. Uh, take a look right here. I wonder, Nazareth and Nazarene are puns? They, they sound very similar, right? In the ancient world, that meant a lot. To us, puns are just jokes, right? Not in the ancient world. Puns could have meaning. There could be a reason why the names are similar. There could be a reason or a meaning or a depth or a message that would happen because the names were so similar. But more than that, I wouldn't worry about it because the word Nazareth and Nazarene are so similar, there could have been a retreat center for Nazarites in Nazareth. We just don't know. In other words, when the Bible talks in its context, let's say the Bible was written here in the Bay Area. 
And somebody said that Jesus was from Livermore. <laughs> you know, but everybody says nothing good comes out of Livermore, right? There you go. Okay, good. All right. So we were just talking this morning about where we're from. So Livermore. Let's say 2,000 years ago, nobody knows what Livermore is anymore, right? We're, we're, reaching through, we're reaching through so much, so much time and space, and we don't, we don't know. But somehow, they knew when they heard Nazareth and Nazareth, they went, yes, that makes sense about Jesus. We just don't really necessarily know what the prophetic reference is. But this brings up the problem of evil. The problem of evil is summed up this way. It's a, it's a syllogism. God is all-powerful. God is good. There is the suffering of innocence in the universe. A good and all-powerful being would use their power to end the suffering of the innocent. Therefore, one of the following must follow. God does not exist. If God does exist, God is not good. If God does exist, God is not all-powerful. How many of you have heard these arguments before? How many of you have had these arguments inside your own head? Exactly. I mean, we would say if any thinking person would. And this is where this hits my, come on, this is cash, cash right here. Because the slaughter of the innocents and the slaughter of children is one of the few things that you could almost universally get, uh, get, get, get uh, uh, affirmation on. Like, it's one of those universal things. We don't kill little kids. We, there aren't cultures that do that when they're living. Now there's abortion and things like that. But, but this, the idea, of, this is, it's unusual. And so it becomes a test case for the problem of evil. How can a good God permit these things to happen to the innocents? What are we going to do about this, guys? You know, it's funny. I was, I was kind of hoping your parents were going to be here today because I could have this conversation with your dad later. But this is real. But the answer, I think, is stunning in the problem of evil. And you're not going to like it, potentially. This is not the God or logic of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign over evil when it happens. And God said he's equally just and loving as a person, as God. He is equally just and loving. But there are no innocent people in the world. Why do we baptize children, guys? Why do we baptize children? A third time, why do we, what are we saying about children when we baptize them? That they're dirty. Not because they're poopy. Not because they haven't had a bath. We are saying they are morally bankrupt by virtue of being born. And they need a savior. Whew. So what I'm going to say, there, there is no crime. I, I, I just, you have to understand what the scriptures are saying here. And you may not like it. This is what God says to you. There is no crime in my permitting the death of, the children, of children. Never, for you have all rejected me. I am the Lord. That's the way he is. And I, you know, it's, I wrestle, I'm in San Francisco. I've got to be sensitive, or maybe I've got to somehow, maybe I could soften, maybe I could pastel this God a little bit. But no, I don't want to. You know why? Because Christ is the God-man who paid the penalty for people in our world who trust in him. Therefore, this God entered our suffering. He entered our suffering. I'm going to be very, very blunt here. I reject Islam. Muhammad created suffering. And I tell you, that is exactly what has happened. I reject the Buddha because the Buddha said suffering is an illusion. We must reject him too. I accept Christ. Why? Because he walked into suffering. There's no theory here. 
there's no theory to satisfy you anymore. No, there is no theory to satisfy you. There's no question to answer. There's no way I can, ex- I can explain it. All I can tell you is that this God, this God, the holy, just, loving God, who will by no means clear the guilty, this God, in his majesty, surrenders all that, empties himself, and enters into the suffering of the world. Doesn't just enter it. Embraces the suffering of the world. As his own. There's nothing like that in any religion. There's something unique and powerful and living and beautiful. And, I'm, and you know what it's calling you? It's calling every one of you to give your lives to him. It's, it, it does. And this is, what, you know, this is what Jesus always does. He comes to the room and you can't go, well, you know, I'm going to be indifferent. <laughs> Chris, I'm not going to make a choice. No, you must be for him or against him all the time in his greatness. It's just who he is as he enters into suffering. We believe we live in a day of terrible things. Therefore, we must take Christ at his word. What is his word? Out of Egypt I called my son. In voice of Rama, and voice and Rama was heard weeping. He shall be called a Nazarene. And the claim there is Christ is saying, take him at his words. He is the one who orchestrated all this. He is the one who permits it in his will and permits evil to happen. That's the way we understand it. That's the way we describe it. But we must take Christ at his words and works today. I put your trust in Christ Today, I was thinking about this. I, I always, uh, I always want to push you to make a decision for Christ, to push you to make a decision to know Him, push you to make a decision that He would be your Savior, that He you would be your your God and your Lord. Um, but decisions before you, perhaps you have objections and doubts. Who knows? <laughs> uh, out of Egypt means out of slavery, bondage to death. You know that promise out of Egypt, I called my son, is, a, is out of bondage and slavery to death and sin and judgment in this world. And that's the Jesus offered to you. The Jesus who comes up next to us in our suffering and knows our suffering and then vicariously dies for a people who should be die, dying themselves for their sins and in their sins. He is the slaughter of the innocent. He's the only slaughter of the innocent that there is or ever was. It's Jesus. And so I, I you know, and, and so what do I do? Uh, um, I was thinking about this. Uh, we live in a day of terrible things. What's your antidote to terrible things? I don't know. I don't know what this world does with the terrible things. I, I, I think, sometimes I think the sentimentality and the consumerism and, the, and all this, the irreverence, they're all ways of just kind of plugging your ears in this generation and going, I don't want to think about the terrible things. I, I'm amazed. How many, how, do you know people who don't watch the news? This happens all the time. Why don't people watch the news? Why? They want to live in a world. <laughs> what? <laughs> what were you going to say, Cedric? That's right, because it's traumatizing. There you go. Thank you. Put your trust in Jesus now today. And I know some of you and some of our people in this world, in this city, are living in terror. And they don't know what to do with the terrible things that happen. And I do. For terrible things happen to my Savior. He knows what to do too. What's the second part of that? There's a deeper story in your life that you, uh, uh, that you, than you know yet. I, I know it's funny. I, and this is one of the things that three times, there's this confusion. You know, he goes to Egypt. Joseph goes to Egypt with Jesus and Mary. And they come back. And then Archelaus is, Archelaus is a madman too, but he only lasted a few years. Archelaus tried to go. He, Archelaus wanted to be king like his dad. And he went to Rome to ask, and he got busted. 
They, they busted him. They, they took him to pieces. And, they, and Rome came and took Palestine over after that. But, um, but, so, but there's a deeper story in your life. There's a certain randomness that sounds like it's happening, a chaos that sounds like it's happening in Joseph's life, doesn't it? Like I always thought as a little kid, because look, let's be smart about this text. If God is in control, why couldn't have God told them to go to Nazareth to begin with? Or <laughs> why does it have to go to Egypt? And then why the up and down and back and forth and weird? I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I guess to talk about more scriptures that could be fulfilled. But I do know this. There's a deeper story underneath your story of your life. And you need God's eyes to be able to see it. It can be so hard to understand why is this happening and why is this happening and why is this chaos and where is God and where are his plans? I know that these frustrations come to us all the time. And there's a simple, simple call here. This chaos that you live in and the chaos that you feel in work and relationships and failures and successes and not knowing the future, not knowing your relationships and not knowing what's going to happen, that is, there is no chaos there. I guess what I'm asking you to say, I'm asking you to, you have to take Christ in his word. There's no chaos in your life. I, you feel like there's complete chaos in your life right now, Mike, is, don't you? There is no chaos in your life. Period. This isn't. Our Father has promised us his will and his presence and his words and his work. Our Savior Christ himself was, was embraced inside all the plans of his Father and protected and provided. And you're just the same. You're just the same. You're just the same in him. And so this is what this story is meant to drive us to. Finally, secondly, um, how should we worship the God who is in control? We must hold on tight to Christ. I, I, I hope this is encouraging. Sometimes I write stuff and I get encouraged and I think, I hope other people are encouraged. I never thought promises are just prophecies about to come true. <laughs> That's all they are. The promises of God are prophecies about how he intends to love you, Joyce. How he intends to love you, Gina. How he intends to be present with you and me. The pro- these, these promises are prophecies about, and aren't they coming true around us? Even in the day of weak things and things were, but we're still provided for. Yes. And I, you know, I, uh, I, I, get, I get excited about this idea that we can move into faith. Prophecies, sometimes people think prophecies were made up or fabricated to fit this story. But I don't know how you can say that. If you were to say that all, these, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, the hundreds of them, were manufactured by the writers of the New Testament, so there would be this seamless meeting point, and then you could tell everybody, see, 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 God's real, and it's just fake. But God's real, you see. That doesn't work. It just doesn't work as a theory. Because while they're doing that and lying, they're also painting some of those beautiful moral teaching the world has ever seen. How do they do that? How do they worship a God whose name is truth, but they're going to lie about it? (laughs) They're going to lie about the stories of his birth. They're going to lie about what happened in the fulfillment. They're going to make up a big story to trick you into believing. It just doesn't make any sense. Moral insight doesn't come from con artists. Trust me, I was, I was raised around them. They, they have nothing to offer morally. Trust me, nothing at all. Nothing at all. But, uh, oh man, I want you to think about this. Do you know what most of the world lives in? I just thought about this. I was thinking about this. This is compassion for us. Most of the world lives in a world where there's no promises. Like, there's no promise that things are going to get better, except maybe a hope, but there's no promise. 
oh, yeah, there's hope, there's dreams, there's dreams of tech, or, or the world of science and medicine will save our lives. Oh, we all have these dreams packed in our backpacks of our minds that somehow we're going to be okay one day, whatever that fantasy is. But there's no promise there. Can you imagine living in a world where there's nothing promised to you? That's how most people live. But we don't have to live like that. We can live. <laughs> I can't. Did you ever think or imagine that you are a prophetic utterance of the Lord? <laughs> Your life is rife with prophetic movement as you moved here to San Francisco. Then you got married. You moved over here. You're going to do it there. You got pregnant. Then you guys are coming. And then we're doing And all this, what looks, and what is happening? Promises are being cashed in on. What we must hold on tight to Christ and ride in the coaster without a seatbelt. I remember getting into a coaster and forgetting seatbelts. Has anybody ever done that? One of those old style coasters? It's terrifying. <laughs> and I couldn't, and I remember because we pulled away and then I, 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 got, it, I got it on, but they, they had some reason they hadn't checked. It's only happened to me once. It was in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was an old coaster, but hey, that's, that's terrifying. How would you ride a coaster without a seatbelt? You would hold on. <laughs> Um, and the reason I use this image is I think that life's a lot like life changes so quickly and so dramatically and can be so hard to understand. It just can be. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to people I love? Why did it happen to Karen? So what's going on? Well, how do we make, how do we make intelligible the riddle of pain and suffering and loss and confusion and doubt and shame that we all seem to climb through day in, day in, day out? I'll tell you how. Holding on. Holding on tighter. Um, life changes dramatically as you're, you've got just to hold on to Jesus even tighter. There's a picture, I, I'm trying to figure out how to paint this picture. Like there's this uh, holding on to Christ for dear life is what worship's about. You see, as the tumult, as my life flips upside down, everything comes to pieces. What am I supposed to do here? Because <gasps> like, there's nothing to hold on to, there's nothing I can permit, there's nothing I can know. Where's the stability? And there's this white-knuckled worship in the desperate moments of your life. Get white-knuckled about worship. When it comes down to the wire, get white-knuckled. Clinging fiercely and angered. I don't care how you hold on to Jesus. Hold on as tight as possible to make him yours. That's how we handle the day of terrible things. That's how we remember in the dark what we knew clearly and could understand in the light. Don't forget when you're in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. And call those things. That's white knuckling. And finally surrendering to God's will. And this is the tone of everything today. It's surrendering to God's will. Surrender is not a word in evangelicalism. We don't talk about surrender. It must come back. Surrender. Do you know how Christ is funny? All right, when I want to share the gospel with somebody, let's say somebody doesn't know anything at all. First, I, I want to seem like I'm crazy. I know that sounds like a hall order, but I, I want to talk to somebody, I say, right? So I want, to, I want to get it, Sid, when I want to get I want Sid, when to be responsive to my message. So one of the things I might do is I might soft pedal certain things. Now, that's, that's actually not inappropriate. Christ does not talk about certain things early in his ministry when he first meets people. He doesn't. He doesn't talk about that he's the son of God. He doesn't talk about, he's going, he doesn't talk about that stuff. What does he talk about? Does anybody know what Christ's out the gate first messages are? Surrender everything. 
and follow me. That always struck me, struck me as odd. Why would Christ start with the, the message that's the most difficult to hear? The message that sounds the most threatening, so scary. The message that seems like you're going to lose everything in the bargain. The message that's... And you're, you realize that, uh, that uh, there's a wisdom in Christ. You see, if I don't tell you it's all him or nothing, if I don't lead with that, I think you're going to get the wrong idea about who it is we're here to worship. <laughs> you're going to miss the point. I, am, I can't trade off or cheapen the, the absolute glory of Christ. I can't do it or his majesty. I can't tarnish it or, re, or, or try to dial it down for you, right? Dial down the luminescence, dial down the, so, you, so, you don't, so you're not frightened. And, and what I found is that's a cheat. And it's funny, this generation is so eager for something they can actually sell out for anyway. We want to sell. We want something we can die for that's worth dying for and giving all for. We must surrender to Christ's will. First, God does not and will not answer your challenges to his justice. I, do I need to say anything more about that? You may not like it. I, I know there's been days I don't like it. But he won't. It is beneath his majesty. It's funny, uh, uh, there, is, there isn't a moment where, Christ, where God ever explains himself about his justice. He is simply justice itself. Justice, doesn't even, justice does not exist above God. Then he answers to justice. Does that make sense? No, God is justice. Serve him, praise him, know him, and surrender. And then finally, you will never know the will of God unless you are yielded before you know what it is. In this final, you know, when I finally read this moment, I'm here, look, I want to comfort you to come and to come to Christ. I want to comfort you to put all your trust in the sovereignty of God. I want to comfort you that you double down, as it were, you know, on the, on the majesty and the sovereignty of God, right? And I'm asking you to do that time and time again about his word and everything. And this final thing is what occurred to me was, how many of you would like to have a dream for God where he'd tell you to move to Seattle? Anybody? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to be like, I woke up this morning and I had a vision. Tao, we're moving to Singapore. You know, like, like I, I said that because she can't stand Singapore. So, uh, so uh, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> the truth is, is that um, God has never given you a decision that he has not given you all the information you need to make the decision when you have to make it, Period. He never has. He's never cheated you. He has always given you everything. He has given you his word. Trust it. Trust it down to your toes. Trust it from beginning to end that every promise was a prophecy about your life. Praise him. Trust him. Surrender to him. Know him. Be filled with him. I want to turn it full circle. This is a true story from the Bay Area, actually, down the peninsula. But... Uh, they, uh, it's Christmas morning, they're, they're, uh, Pastor Chip or something his name, of course his name was Chip, uh, Pastor Chip came to church and, and uh, immediately noticed that the baby Jesus was taken out of the nativity scene, out in the front lawn. That baby Jesus had been stolen. Called the police, um, you know, like the, you know, because vandalism of nativity scenes, you know a typical nativity scene, it's a little shed, you know, a little shed, a bunch of hay, usually some donkeys. 
Yeah, that's how I say it, donkeys. Usually there's some gaudy wise men, plastic wise men standing here. You know, you get the scene, the shepherds are there. It's intimate, it's cool, it's pretty. It's usually well lit. So as they were waiting for the police to come and they were making a, going to make a police report about the vandals and done to their nativity scene, what do you know, right down the block comes one of the little neighborhood kids with a little red wagon. And he's pulling the wagon on, he's walking up to the pastor. And the pastor sees right away that the, ba- that the, that the, uh, the little figurine of Jesus is in the wagon. And the little boy came up and the pastor said, what, what were you doing with the baby Jesus. What were you doing with the nativity scene? And he said, Pastor, I told Jesus that if he got me a red wagon for Christmas, that I would give him a ride in it. So that's what I did. I love that. That's so charming. I want to return to the nativity scene that we're all part of. It's prepackaged for us. And I want you to hear again that that place of weakness, that place of darkness, that place that looks so insignificant in the eyes of the world and Herod and everybody else, that nobody even cared to visit, that's a place of real power. And when we come with childlike dependence and childlike surrender and childlike joy and childlike trust and a childlike dependence on his word, a childlike surrender to everything, we can live in that immediacy of his promise that he has been that true and available to us, that, that real for us in his plans. And I think that, so even as I try to, he's going to come in so hard and hot, bashing Christmas. I don't want to just bash Christmas. There's something deep to save there. Something deep and beautiful in the totems and symbols of our culture even, which communicate that God is in control. He has a power that shines in weakness. He goes into the darkness and in the confusion and chaos of this world and sends his, sends his son. And there it is. And the nativity is beautiful. So I, I guess I'm of two minds this, this Christmas holiday season. I, I, you know, I want us to have that awareness that can pierce through the manipulations and the sentimentality and the conceits. But then let's not be afraid to grab these beautiful stories as promises to us. Promises to us and when we don't have anything and we don't know where to go, we don't know what to do. Amen? That's a good Christmas message. Boy, I just preached a really long time, isn't I? All right, let's, let's, let's stop. <laughs> let's pray. Dear Jesus, dear baby Jesus, I, <laughs> I can't believe that you were a king uh, as an infant like that. But Father, we come to you and we praise you. I praise you for your, the, the word made true, proved again and again in prophecy and otherwise, to give us confidence that you are real, that this is true, that things we believe are not silly fantasies made up to comfort people in the night, but that they are the love of a God from eternity. I pray for the hearts of everyone who hears me, that they would be transformed into new joy by your presence this Christmas. Father, what do we do with the terrible things that are happening, the terrible things in this generation, terrible things in our government, terrible things in our time? What should we do, Father? We turn to you again and we ask for your word to tell us, oh, this was prophesied about long ago. We want to hear again about how our lives were prophesied about and that that your promises will all come true. And they're all yes and amen in Jesus. 
Give us new Christmas joy. We pray it in Christ. Amen. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a table of love. <laughs> this is a table of love. But you notice, as much as it's a table of love, just like the, just like the Christmas story, it's a, that's a grim table. It's a table of death too, isn't it? And life. But this body and blood of our Savior is for you if you trust in him and if you're a sinner like me. If you're a sinner like me, this is your t- table. Iran, how are you? It's good to see you. And if, this is, if you're a sinner like me, this is your table. But if, if, if you're a good person, you know the drill. If you're a good person, then you don't know Christ's love yet. Good people don't have the hope and the promises of Christmas. It's for the wicked, like me. Mm. Now I praise you for that, Father. And finally, if you're a skeptic and you're skeptical about all these claims, uh, then I ask you to watch and wait, and someday perhaps you will know him. I'm going to be praying that you do, so watch out. My prayers are coming after you. All right, so let's, uh, let's go to the table now. Uh, let's stand, and let's answer the question, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Come.